listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Holiness of God is talking about that God is separate. He's unlike anything else that we know. Of all the things we know, the the kind of good, the good, the the bad, the horrible, God is so unlike all of those things. He's different from all the other things that we experience. He's unique, and he's perfect, and he is separate, and he is a firm foundation. I mean, you can, you, you buy a new car, this is a terrible story. My dad bought a new car, it's not that old. The headlight went out, it cost him $1,400 to change the headlight. Right? Ugh, I'm sorry to bring up that horrible tale in church. You're trying to be happy. But you're like, you buy a new car and it lets you down, man. It's like, really? $1,400? You, you put trust in a friend. You, you, whatever. All these things happen. But when you put your trust in the holiness of God, he is separate. He is different. He is perfect in all of his ways. That's why trusting Jesus is so much different than trusting anything else in this world. Even ourselves. And so as we were singing that, I will build my life upon you. I, will, I just got to be like, so like, Lord, you're so different. You're other. And in his otherness, there is no flaw. He's morally perfect. And from his perfection, everything flows. His love, his goodness, his righteousness, all that he does is right and good, but all that he is is right and good. And so when we sing holy is the Lord, I'm just like, thank you, Lord, that you're not like anything else that I know, that you're perfect in all of your ways. Anyway, so I was, I was getting excited about that today. You know, it's okay for you to get excited about the things in church. If it's good theology, if it's good stuff, go ahead, get excited with me. All right, today I want to inaugurate, I wish I had a bottle of wine, I would smash it on the podium. Um, a new preaching series that we're going to do for the next 12 weeks. It's going to be on 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. How many people have read the book of 1 Peter? Good. How many people have never read it? It's okay. Don't, don't worry. By the time these 12 weeks are over, I hope you have such a phenomenal, deep, wonderful understanding of what Peter is writing about in this letter. I really do want you to become like one of those people that has all the underline and highlights in your Bible from 1 Peter. It's a good place. If you don't have a lot of underlying highlights in your Bible, this is a great spot to start. Here's what it's going to pertain to. There'll be 12 weeks in which we preach through, basically chapter by chapter, through 1 Peter on Sunday mornings. I'll be doing the preaching. Andy's going to do some preaching. Adam's going to do some preaching. It's going to be a great time from the pulpit as we just declare and celebrate what God's Word says. I want you to come to church prepared and your heart ready to respond. The second thing is our small groups are all going to be going through 1 Peter as well. And so if you listen to the preaching and you're like, okay, that was good. I I wonder how to put that um, into my life, into practice. I sure could use a place just to talk to some other people how to work that out. That's what small groups are for. We call them life share. We share life in small groups. So everyone is invited and even more than that urged to join a small group if you're not already in one. Next week, we're going to have a list and announcements, and we'll roll it out for you. But I want you to be thinking now, how can we make space 
to join a small group so we can be with other people from the church and just talk about what God's doing as we go through 1 Peter, okay? And thirdly, I have put together 1 Peter Community Study Guide. Yeah, oh, nice. I appreciate that. What I did here, it's, it's, it's not super deep. It's not like a commentary. But I went through and I, I lined up the preaching series that we're doing with the scriptures we'll be preaching on, and I made a, a, a kind of a community reading guide. And so I assumed three days a week where you sit down with your Bible and you read passages, you pray through some of it, and then I just I made real simple points of interest within those passages, things I want to make sure that you see as you're reading it. Maybe you don't need those, you're a scholar of your own accord, great. But I went through it and I tried to give us some real helpful handholds and footholds as you kind of go through it. And so I want to invite you, as we start, to go through, get yourself one of these, and just commit to three days a week. Say, I'm going I'm to read the passages together that we as a church are reading. I'm going I'm to pray through these things. I'm going to look at the points of interest that Dave kind of wanted to point out for me. And I'm going to become a student of the book of 1 Peter. How many people want to do that with me? Yeah, thank you. This is September, so I'm, I'm through October. By next week, I should have the whole thing finished. But this is your start. And here's the fun part. This week, your assignment is simple. It's to read the entire book of 1 Peter out loud. Maybe just stand up like at the dinner table. Just start reading. Or, or maybe, maybe I just want 1 Peter out loud. So maybe you're one of those people that commutes a lot. Well, put it up on um, Bible Gateway or whatever and have it just draw your driving. Have it read out loud to you. I thought of doing a podcast where you could hear my voice reading the book of 1 Peter. But that dude, from, um, that dude from Bible Gateway, he's a bit better reader than I am. So. But I want you to experience 1 Peter out loud. You don't have to do it all in one sitting. But it'd be amazing if you gathered with friends or if you just pulled your family together and you read out loud. Have some of the kids read it or, you know, honor the word of God in your home and read it out loud. You don't have to do anything fancy with it. When you're done reading, say, thus concludes the reading, and have dinner or whatever you're going to do. Can we do it? All right, I'm excited about it, so let's get started. All right, you already see, this is Peter, they think, I don't know. Um, Peter was, as you know, one of the disciples of Jesus. He was the zealous guy, like he's the guy that got out of the boat, right? He's the guy that first professed that Jesus was the Messiah, and then like 15 seconds later, he, he, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Because he, he starts getting in the way of God. He starts taking control, trying to tell Jesus how this whole thing should be done. So Peter is known for his boldness and making some really dumb mistakes. And so he writes us this epistle, First and Second Peter. Martin Luther called it the most noble book of the Bible. Highly commended by Martin Luther. in in his reforming passion as he translated the scriptures into German. He believed it contains everything necessary for a Christian to know. That's kind of good. It's like the Cliff's Notes of the Bible. It's kind of nice for those of you who don't like to read large volumes. In 1 Peter, it's the presentation of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out and shows how it's to be lived out within the larger unbelieving society. 
You see, 1 Peter writes to people who aren't friendly with Christianity. And he talks about Jesus being the foundational principle. Build your life on Jesus, as we've been singing. And then he illustrates how, following Jesus' examples, we're to live our lives in the midst of an unbelieving society. Many people question how 1 Peter, if it's relevant to America, because America has been so friendly to Christianity for centuries, right? Christian nation was the title people used to use. A lot of people came to America to express Christian religious freedom. But in our day, it's very mixed, isn't it? There are some pockets that really honor and appreciate and give special privilege to Christianity. And there are some pockets, wow, pockets of our world that are quite unfriendly and some think hostile to Christianity. Well, 1 Peter deals well with the latter. And I think if we were honest, if we were living our faith out with boldness and courage and zeal, that we all might find that much of our society chafes and gives us a hard time for living out our faith. And this goes through 1 Peter. So let me read just the first couple verses of 1 Peter, and then I'll jump into some, some points on it. So 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we ask, God, that we would experience these very things, the abundance of grace, the abundance of peace. Lord, I, I just ask that as we go through your word, your word would go through us. Lord, I know, we know that the world tends to shape our thinking. It t- tends to shape even our, our desires and our cravings and our longings. God, we can't help, Lord, but feel the gravity of the world in which we live. Much of it does not honor you. And so, God, as we go through your word, as we even journey in these weeks through 1 Peter, God, I pray that we would feel a greater gravity towards your heart, towards your will, towards, Lord, the life that you would have us live. Lord, form us and shape us in a new way. God, for many of us, it feels like the concrete's already dry. There's no changing. But we know that's not true. For you are the potter and we are the clay. Put your hands upon us as we spin around. Form us and shape us into a vessel that's usable, that's beautiful, and that honors you. God, we pray for the abundance of grace and peace in this church. That this community, God, in the way we function outside of this room, in the way we function together, where we function in our inner hearts. God, these would be places of great grace and great peace and great trust in you. 
I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Together we said, amen. I want to talk for a minute about who First Peter is written to because it's, it's really fun to see. Um, and the clues to who First Peter is written to are found in First Peter. You can look at the kind of words and the language that are used in certain scriptures and you get a sense and a feel for who it's written to. And so as we look at this, we see a couple things. That First Peter is written to rural people, country people. The illustrations of sheep and lions and seeds. These are illustrations that Peter uses because his audience would understand them. There are sheep people. There are people that deal with lions and, and what it means for the attack of a lion and the, the power of a lion. There are people that are agricultural. They sow seeds. And so Peter uses that language. Peter is written to rural people. So you'll see the Greek word for slave that is used in 1 Peter is not like a field slave. It's a household slave. We'll talk about slaves when we get there. But that is a clue to the fact that it is written to people in urban centers as well. It probably was written to people in urban centers, and then from there, copies were made, and it was sent out to the rural surrounding countryside. 1 Peter is also written to both sexes, men and women. He talks about the prayers of men, and he talks about the beauty of women. What men's prayers should look like, and what women's beauty should look like. It's written to everybody. It's written to people of all different social statuses. So, of course, slaves and freed people. Some have great wealth. So when Peter's talking to the women, he's talking about gold and expensive clothes. And some live quite meager, kind of hand-to-mouth sustenance lives. It's racially different. First Peter is written to Jews, clearly Jews. I mean, Peter himself is Jewish. He just drips his ethnicity. I mean, if you knew Peter, man, he, you'd be like, I know who that guy is. He just drips it. Some of you drip your ethnicity. That's cool. He's a Jew and he writes to Jews. There's so many Old Testament references in this letter because he knows that the Jews that he's writing to will understand the references. But it's also written to Gentiles. It must be written to Gentiles because as you read 1 Peter, you'll hear things like, how they used to participate in drunkenness and lawless idolatry. That doesn't sound like Jews who are very strict in obeying the law. It talks about how they were ransomed from a vain way inherited by your forefathers. Certainly, Peter wouldn't say that the Jewish people had a vain, bad way handed down from their forefathers. Clearly, Peter knew that the, for, the Jewish forefathers, they prepared the way for the gospel to be brought. And so Peter is writing to different races as well. As a matter of fact, uh, Pliny the Elder, you can put him up there. How many people know Pliny the Elder? By the way, he could easily be mistaken by, to Peter. I, I googled both those people, and I'm like, they could be the same guy. I don't know. Uh, Pliny the Elder, he was a Roman. Um, he did all kinds of things. He, he, was a, he was a naturalist. He would, like, discover the curiosities of how the world works. He was an author, he was a historian, but he was a Roman. He wasn't a Christian. He, uh, he notes in one of his writings about the variety of the early Christian church. Rural people, urban people, men, women, 
high, low social statuses, racially very diverse. The church is meant to be very mixed, praise God, right? Can I get a witness in this room? The church is built for that. The gospel is designed to bring the differences together. And if you'll allow me just to riff on this a minute, because we don't take a church and make it our ethnicity, but the church creates its own kingdom culture, which is neither red or yellow, black or white or brown or any other color. The church itself is the ethnicity of the kingdom of God, our heavenly citizenship. And we bring our ethnicities, our black, our white, our Asian, our Hispanic, we bring that into the kingdom realm. Not to deny it and leave it at the door, but we bring it in as part of our offering. That we come, I come as a a, a Dutch white guy, and I bring my culture and I offer it and I submit it to God. And you come from your ethnicity, from your African-American or Latino, and you don't make your culture or my culture the culture, because the culture is kingdom. But we bring it into the Lord and we worship through it. And, yes, and we celebrate one another's cultures and backgrounds. We are not colorblind. I see our differences. And the point of Christ is I celebrate them. Won't you celebrate them? Not easy to do in our world. There's a lot of things that keep us apart that make us fight. And good reasons. But the blood of Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom is that we, we move beyond that into the unity of the spirit for the praise of King Jesus to do the will of God together. Amen? Amen. So we see that from 1 Peter, even in the way that's written, that the church is to be very mixed. Let me talk about the purpose of Peter's letter. The purpose of Peter's letter is is found, actually, you see in the very, one of the closing statements that Peter makes. 1 Peter 5, verse 12. It's kind of in the final greetings, the see you later section of the letter. And it says this, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. The purpose of this letter is so that you would know the true grace of God. That your life would be soundly, firmly established on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And I hope as we go through these things that you evaluate that. How well is my life established on Christ? And how much of my life is driven by the pressures and the influences and the ways of this world? Things handed down to me, the empty ways handed down to me from former generations or from the television or the radio or the songs that you listen to. There's a lot of influencers in our world. And as we go through this, the question is, are you standing fast on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ himself? Chapter 2 of 1 Peter will just go crazy on that. And the second thing is that in the midst of struggle and persecution and insults and isolation, will you be able to live out your faith? Do you have the godly biblical reactions to that kind of responses from the world? Because as we'll see, suffering for the Christian in this world is normal. 
It is, it is the expectation. And the response of suffering for the Christian is to follow Jesus' example. Christ is our, he is the object of our faith and he is the example of our faith. So that's the purpose of it. And I think we'll all have some work to do to be asking the Lord, am I, am I where I need to be? Am I standing fast in the true grace of God? Let's talk about that a minute. Standing fast with Jesus. The first thing is that he is the object of our faith. Is this simple? Is this easy? Do you know this? Yes, you do. But let me bring some, let me bring some words to this that are profound and powerful. 1 Peter 1, it says this, in verse 3 and 4. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Todd read this to begin the service. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Now that is our Christian hope, right? We know that God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Many of you are here knowing your sins, remembering your sins. Sometimes your sins even come back and push on you. They condemn you. But the scripture says that God in his mercy has caused us to be born again, right? Born again Christians. That's where that comes from. Nicodemus, who was a very spiritually religious, astute man, he questioned that. He's like, how can I go back into my mom's womb? How is it possible for me to be born again? And Jesus so beautifully and plainly made it clear to him that you are born again. By believing in Jesus. That there is a transaction that happens in us that causes our old life to die and a new life, a new spiritual life, but also a new life lived out to be done. So the born again experience is that the old is supposed to go and the new is supposed to come. So Jesus is the object of our faith. How does the old go? Well, we die with Christ. Now, there, you may be saying, you know what? I've got old habits that have stuck with me even into my conversion, even into my Christian life. I have old habits. Maybe you used to drink too much and you still find it hard to drink, not to drink too much. Maybe you had trouble with lust or pornography or, or the whole sexual where you're, you're just like, ugh, my sexuality is not holy. It's not where it needs to be. I'm under such constant, like, just turmoil of my desires. My appetites, those come with you. Well, the born-again experience is not to say you should simply try harder to change those things, though you should try hard and they should be changed. But the born-again experience is that the death of Jesus is your power to leave sin behind. Right? So, yes. So practically speaking, if that's you, if you're, if you're a gossip and you were a gossip and you've come to Christ and you still find great joy in talking about other people behind their back for your delight and for your, the elevation of your social status, that's what gossip does. If you brought that with you, then you say, I, but I have been born again. The old me, the sinful me, has been crucified with Christ. And so the way we deal with gossip is we bring it to the cross. Behold, the greatest demonstration of love ever done in the history of man, the cross of Jesus Christ. 
So we come to that horrible torture execution symbol, but to us it's a symbol of his love that he won't reject us for our sin, but he has borne our sin on it. God will not reject you for your sin, but your sin must go. What should we say then? Should we live in it any longer? By no means, Paul says. We died to sin. You bring it to the cross and you humble yourself and you confess your sin. Jesus, I have a problem with my sexual desires. Jesus, I am sinning in my ambition. Jesus, I am sinning in my anger. Right? I could, do I need to go on with the things that we sin in? But you bring that to the cross, humbling. You bow your knee and say, Jesus, I need to die to this. You see, many people think your sin must be managed. Right? All of us think our sin must be hidden. But the Bible says our sin must be crucified. And so Christ brought it to the cross. The price has been paid There's just a new transaction that needs to happen, which means you need to realize the reality of your born-again experience. And it's not a shameful experience, although we carry shame. It's a glorious experience. But do not justify and accommodate yourself to your sin. Don't be like, you know what? God loves me, God forgives me, I'm just going to carry on. No! In his mercy, he is, we have been born again. The old is gone, the new has come. The, we live for Christ, not ourselves. Don't allow your sin to come along with baggage. In the power of God and the victory of the cross, bring it to him and die to it. The scripture is clear. If you, bring a friend along. Have someone confess it to a friend and have them on their knees with you. But hiding and denying and justifying are not the ways of the new life. Those are the ways of the old life. Our foundation is on Christ. As we take on the new Christ identity, allow the work of Christ to set you free from the old chains that have bound you. It's a process. We go through it all the time. But we continue to come to the cross. We live in the shadow of the cross. And we don't stray from it. It's not on human works, lest anyone should boast. But on the work of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 18 says this. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. For he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your hope, your faith and your hope are in God. It's not just the cross of Jesus that brings us to our new life experience. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. Say it, Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's alive. Jesus is alive today. Yeah, you're with me on that old one. The the resurrection of Christ 
is the mechanism by which we're brought into our inheritance. Because Christ lives, you live. He is the object of our faith. Let me bring the second part mentioned. He is also the example of our destiny. Jesus is the example of our destiny. Let me put it this way. Jesus suffered. First, this, these are all themes of 1 Peter. Jesus suffered unjustly, right? And his response to his unjust suffering was what? He didn't say a word. His response to his unjust suffering allowed him to suffer in view of God, not in view of his sufferings. He suffered in view of God for God's plan and God's will. And it brought about that unjust suffering, salvation for all of us. And that he was glorified and sits at the right hand of God. So too, our unjust suffering, says First Peter, is the normal functioning of the Christian. We suffer not because you deserve it, but because... We live in a world that's unjust, that resists the kingdom of God, and we are to respond to that unjust suffering, not with retaliation or accusation, but with good works. First Peter even goes far to say that unjust suffering is God's will for the Christian. This cuts against every sensibility, justice and fairness, every human desire not to be disrespected or put down. It cuts across everything that is in our nature. Nobody puts baby in a corner. And still we see that Jesus is our example. He is our destiny. Let me talk about what these Christians were experiencing. The Christians in 1 Peter were experiencing a type of social persecution. You see, we post-enlightenment Christians, we think religion is something of the heart. Well, religion goes on on the inside, so externally, you can function in business, you can function at your card night, you can go to PTA or school meeting, you can, you can function in society fine, just keep your religion and your politics, for that matter, to yourself. Well, in first century Rome, that was not the case. Religion was part of the social order. So people did business sacrificing to the idols of the gods. People had relationships wives and sons and daughters and slaves all had to have the religion of the husband or the master. And so religious social constructs of these, these years of this generation were all tied up in religion. And so suddenly these people are having an awakening, getting born again and living for Jesus, and they're, they're refraining from some of these socially necessary functions of idol worship. And so they're saying, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. We worship the Lord. And people were getting upset because it was upsetting the social order. It's like when you, your, your veganness goes to someone's house and they're making cheeseburgers, right? It's awkward at best. And you pull tofu out of your purse, right? Yeah, eat what you want. It's not a problem. 
But these were the social tensions, and they were causing real problems. They, non-participating in this, was causing the thought that it was threatening the well-being of society. Christians became the subject of dishonor. Listen to this in 1 Peter 2.12. People were denigrating Christians as evildoers. And Peter says to them, look, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, as they were doing, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on that day when he visits He's like, hey, you're, you're not being a part of the drinking games or whatever, smoking pot after, behind the garage after church with your friends. Your non-participation in what you deem as sinful and not honoring to God is causing people to say, you're a bad influence. You're a problem in our world. But the solution to that piece of said was, you just, just function so well, live such good lives that though they're accusing you of that, you show them something different. You demonstrate to them the goodness of God by your conduct. They are also being thought of, or they are also being insulted publicly. Can you imagine being insulted publicly because of your faith? Maybe you have been. I remember in high school being insulted because I was a Christian. I remember being on the baseball team and people being like, yeah, he's a Christian. And they just talk down about me. He's not getting invited to this party. He ain't going to hang in that. I was not in the in cool crowd because I just come to Christ. And I was like, I want to follow the Lord. I want to obey Jesus. I want my life to matter. And I'm desperate for a different life because I was just living in survival mode. I wanted, I wanted to live my life right and full. But when I started living that way, the guys on the baseball team weren't very impressed. As a matter of fact, they started using me as an example of things that weren't cool. And I had to be like, "Uh, maybe I'm cool, maybe I'm not, but I was so just caught up with the Lord, I just made my way forward. We're afraid of being insulted publicly because of our faith. Many people hide their faith because they're afraid of what others will think. It's true. Peter says, chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. How many people, like, that's your mentality. Like, you know what? If I get insulted because of my faith, put down or marginalized, or not invited somewhere, Think, man, I am blessed because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory rests on me. Yeah. I mean, we want to think that way. But our flesh does not always think that way. Our reality is that some of us are just, quite frankly, too insecure to take that kind of abuse. And so we hide it under a bushel. We don't let it shine. First Peter deals with these things.
They were not undergoing a lot of physical persecution. Um, you didn't see people, their lives weren't being take, taken, burned at the stake. Some of, the, some of the, the worst of the persecution we think about when we look at Christian history. But in verse 4, chapter 4, it says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, that he's separate, right? Always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that you are, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, Peter's concern for these Christians living in this society was that eventually all this pressure on them, they're being insulted, marginalized, even economically. Some people stopped doing business with Christian businesses because they couldn't do the social sacrifice to idols and the civic gods, they were called. It's like people protesting Chick-fil-A. But Peter, his concern for them was that they would, at some point, buckle. The pressure would at some point get too much, and they would lose their faith. They would hide their faith. Or, his equal concern was that they would begin to retaliate. It's one thing if you're like, I'm going through the social pressure, I'm feeling it, I'm insecure about it, I don't like being insulted, so I'm just going to hide my faith or forsake my faith. But an equally bad part of it was for him to start retaliating. Start fighting. Start undermining the name of Christ by wicked behavior. Peter says the right response to insults is goodness, not retaliation. Some of you are thinking about that too much to clap. I understand. I can't clap because I'm thinking. It's okay. It's deep. It's deep. Peter's concern was that they would lose their faith or hide their faith. Peter's concern was that they would retaliate. Let me just end with this. There's a theme of Peter's epistle. He desired people not to lose their faith or hide their faith. He desired people not to retaliate for the harshness, the legitimate unjust harshness they were experiencing. But Peter was encouraging the church to engage, to engage at a real life level in their faith with the hostile society. Peter wanted those Christians chosen and exiled, spread throughout Asia Minor to be able to engage their world in such a healthy way as that the testimony of Jesus would spread like wildfire. And he does it in two ways. In the midst of opposition... He says, let your joy, let your worship 
be great. He talks about declaring the excellencies of God. He talks about incomparably great joy and glory in the life of the Christian. That the reality of their salvation, the profoundness of what they've experienced in God, that there would be this profound and extravagant love and worship of King Jesus. They wouldn't, they wouldn't run away from that. Or they wouldn't try to rationalize or deny it. But they would lean in. They would press in to heartfelt, authentic, full surrender and exaltation of King Jesus. That was his first response to a troubled world. And his second one was this, and it's so profound, is that witness, testimony about Jesus, is is words and deeds together. I want to take a minute because I want to explain this. There's a historical trend in the modern church. In in the early 1900s, there was all this battle for orthodoxy. Liberalism in theology was running rampant. It was part of the Enlightenment and all these different things. And there was a large portion of religion and theology that was undermining the authenticity and the inerrancy of Scripture and the reality of of Jesus being divine in and of himself, that he was the God-man. And so there was a lot of theology being done that was saying that the Scripture is not the capital W Word of God. It's just the experience of men and their history. And as a matter of fact, most of that was kind of rewritten, and it's really just a marketing thing to build the church. It's not really talking about the historic Jesus. And there was a lot of work and a lot of debate and a lot of smart people in universities and trickled into churches of this liberal theology that denied the reality that the Scripture is God-breathed and that Jesus himself was God incarnate. And huge battles were waged and raged in theology. And what happened was the the conservative or what we view as the evangelical or, or much of the faith that we know They were fighting that battle, and as as a consequence, they began to circle the wagons, and they would focus only on right theology. And so you get these great bastions of of organizations, and Moody Bible Institute, a name you can trust, and fundamentalism, and all that kind of stuff came in because Christians were afraid that Jesus himself was being undermined and the Word of God was being undermined. And so they made these big ivory theological towers and fought for good theology. Praise God for that. But in doing that, they abandoned the social gospel, helping people on the street, trying to alleviate poverty, caring about the alien, visiting those in prison. The very fabric of the good deeds we see in Scripture. And what happened was the liberal church that didn't believe that Jesus was God and didn't believe that the Bible was legit as it was. It's a marketing tool to promote and to help form the church, not talking about the historical Jesus. They began doing all sorts of good works. And so somehow good works got to be the enemy of good theology. At least by way of hyperbole, I say it that way. And I believe today, and I hope here, that we'll understand that right theology will thrust us into right living. Not just holy 
not sinning living, though that's very important. It's covered in Peter. But a purity of heart and an extravagance of life filled with goodness, filled with non-retaliation for not having the Christian benefits. There may be a day when you no longer get tax benefits for donating to the church. That should be the day you don't give less, you give more. There may be a day when we no longer have most favored position in society because of our Christian heritage. That is the day your good works should shine all the brighter. Don't fuss, don't complain, don't retaliate. I mean, you feel free to work and, you know, it's nice to have a tax break. But it's not the point. The point is that if society doesn't agree with your kingdom life, that's normal. If people insult you or persecute you because of your convictions, your response to that is not retaliation or denial of your faith. It's goodness. Oh, that the church would be known for our good deeds. Not because we're saved for them. Well, we are saved for them. Not because we're saved by them. None of our good deeds are, would, would qualify us for God's mercy. But I 100% tell you, if you read your Bible, you'll see that God's mercy absolutely compels you to good deeds. God save us from having right theology, but lives that do not do good to the world around us. God help us know the word of God so well that our worship is extravagant and joyful and that our lives are profoundly reflecting the life of Jesus who when accused he did not retaliate who when hung on a cross said Father forgive them and committed himself to God conscious of God and his plan knowing that God will transform our world through the insults you receive it's not about you let me read this final blessing and we'll close 1 Peter 4 says this. The end of all things is near. That kind of changes things, doesn't it? Like if you knew tomorrow wouldn't happen, this was our last day on earth, you'd probably go out for a really nice dinner tonight. I was saving this for a rainy day. Rainy day's not coming. Steaks all around. Sorry, vegans. Tofu, I don't know, whatever. perspective that the end of all things is near this world is not it wasn't the beginning and it will not be the end it's a pass-through the things we live and the things we suffer in this world will come to an end the end of all things is near he says therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you might pray above all love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Thank you very much. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, I love this, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. God provides. 
not your own. So that in all things, God might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Stand to your feet and applaud him. I'm serious. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for precious time that we can gather together, hear your word, let our hearts be exposed to a different gravity. Not the gravity of the world or the influences that are so powerful around us, but that our hearts would be shaped and transformed by the influence of your word and the moving of your Holy Spirit. God, grant us great grace and abundance. Bring peace to our hearts and lives. God, through our study of 1 Peter and our engagement, Lord, with the risen Christ, be mighty in our lives, Lord. Be mighty in our lives. Save us from our sins. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the glory and the power forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Lord, bless these people. Let them go in great joy. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.